I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Hello and welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. My name is Garrett Morrison, and today we have takeaways from the 2022 U.S. Open. So things got off to a pretty strange start early last week in Brookline. The chatter at the country club was all about the Saudi-backed Live Golf Invitational Series and the threat that it poses to the PGA Tour. The topic came up at almost every press conference, and behind the scenes, it seemed to be the only thing people wanted to talk about. And that's understandable. It's a huge, era-defining story. But I have to admit, it was a bit of a relief when the golf started, and we realized that we had a great tournament on our hands. The country club was demanding, but not sadistic. The conditions were blustery, but never to the point the play had to be stopped. And the proper golfers, the ones who show up when the course is tough and the wind is strong, rose above the fray. Rory McIlroy, Colin Morikawa, John Rahm and Scotty Scheffler quickly got themselves into contention. But late on Sunday, everyone's focus was on a duel between two less well-known players, Will Zalatoris from San Francisco by way of Texas and Matt Fitzpatrick from England. Both have played well in recent majors. Fitzpatrick made it to the final pairing at this year's PGA Championship. And on the same day, Zalatoris narrowly lost in a playoff. So it wasn't surprising to see the two of them trading blows down the stretch at the U.S. Open. This time, Fitzpatrick was just slightly better. He arrived at the 72nd hole one stroke ahead of Zalatoris, and after pulling his drive into a fairway bunker, Fitzpatrick hit the shot of his life. A nine iron that he squeezed around the lip of the bunker and faded back to the middle of the green, 18 feet from the pin. That is how you win a major championship. To discuss all of this and more, we have four guests today. We have Paolo Ugetti, a staff writer at ESPN.com, to sum up the big storylines of the week. We have Ryan Barath of Golf.com to talk about Matt Fitzpatrick's recent gains in distance. And we have Bradley Klein, a journalist and golf architecture historian, and he'll say a few words about the course and the way it was set up. But first, we're going to talk to a player who is actually in contention at the country club. I'm talking about the PGA Tour pro, Nick Hardy. Nick has been on the Fried Egg podcast twice before and has been on an absolute tear since coming back from a wrist injury about a month ago. Nick is truly one of the good guys, always fun to talk to, so we figured we'd start with his story. All right, I am on the phone with Nick Hardy, who was T14 this week at Brookline. Great performance from Nick. He is currently in the car talking to me on the phone. Uh, so, Nick, where are you headed right now? I'm headed to uh, Hartford, uh, the next event at the Travelers, so can't wait. Yeah, that's a that's a cool event. Have you have you played in the Travelers before? I have. Uh, they gave me an exemption, actually, in 2018. It was my uh, first PGA Tour start as a professional. So, uh, wow. yeah, definitely good, good memories, and um, it's just a great event. I, I, I love this event. All right, so... You know, you had a great week at the country club, but why don't we start a couple of months ago? 
you were dealing with a wrist injury. Um, so maybe you just tell me a little bit about the issue that you were having and what made you ultimately decide to, to take some time off. Yeah, so I hurt my wrist um, in Louisiana at the Zurich Classic. Uh, it was a week where I really actually felt like my game was turning around finally. I told uh, my fiance Liz on the drive this, the Sunday round at the course, and like, no matter what happens today, I, I, I'm very happy with where my game's headed and the direction I feel with my game, and I'm just excited. And then that day, I hurt my wrist, and I was diagnosed, and I was like out for a month. So, but uh, now looking back on it, that wrist injury is a blessing um, in disguise, and I think it really just helped uh, settle my thoughts. I just stopped thinking about golf for a couple weeks at least. And uh, it gave me clarity, uh, I think, in the game again. Among other things that I changed in my lifestyle, kind of I, I made some tweaks um, to help maybe help my better my life as well, just uh, outside of golf. So uh, just among those certain things that uh, of how it happened and how it transpired, it all kind of helped uh, towards my comeback. So if you don't mind talking about it, what were some of the adjustments that you made to your routine or your kind of approach to the day-to-day? Yeah, you know, alongside with clearing my mind with, you know, kind of maybe some negative thoughts and some just over-trying, complicating, especially with certain areas of my game. I kind of lost my confidence really in my putting mainly for a while there, and it really affected the rest of my game. And so that just, you know, slowed down my thoughts. I had a really good putting week at Zurich, but I know I got hurt. And then really all I could do after a couple weeks on the shelf was putt. So I, uh, I practiced my putting a lot for a couple weeks when I couldn't even hit a ball. Uh, so that, that putting in the time there helped for that, helped solve that. But um, I also started using a Neuropeak Pro and Intel belt, and that was crucial for me. I, I, I did practice my breathing two times a day. Um, and it, you know, it's really a score system that scores you and how well you're doing really just how your heart is connected to your breathing. And so that helped a lot. I started taking daily magnesium supplements. Uh, that's really helped me just everyday life kind of relax and chill. And I think that that's helped a lot too. And then when I came back from injury with my wrist and started hitting balls, I noticed that in order to protect my wrist, I had to swing a certain way. Uh, when I came back for that first Glen Club event on the Corn Ferry Tour. And it, that, that, that way I was swinging really helped me control my spin and distance better with my long irons. Uh, or and not with my long irons, my short irons. And so I was very uh, surprised because, wow, I was like, wow, like the things I kind of need to work on my swing are really helpful for coming back with this injury and trying to maintain not hurt this injury. So interesting. Uh, all of it kind of added together. I can get into more detail if you'd like about the kind of the, the feelings in my swing that helps go that way if you want. Well, I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, we don't need to get too deep into the weeds, but it sounds like, w- was it just that you weren't using your wrist to save your swing anymore? You had to kind of keep it stable in order to prevent injury? Yeah. So it was my left wrist that I hurt. And in my swing, sometimes I just get a little narrow and I pull down in my, in my golf swing and it causes me to kind of lose space and effectively just kind of pinch the ball and hit high spinners that kind of don't, don't, uh, aren't very good trajectory. So it forced me to use my body more and be softer in my, in my, 
in my lower body to start my transition and then also slower with my upper body pulling. And so that kept me wide and that kept me hitting, you know, nine irons, able to hit nine irons, pitching wedges low and um, off speed better. And it's something I've always worked on, but it was just, it just kind of made me realize, wow, yeah, like this is the way I need to swing all the time. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, I mean, if people have listened to your past podcasts with Andy, you've been on the fried egg podcast twice before they know that you're a golf nut. You know, you, you play a lot of golf. You're really into it. Was taking some of the time off just sort of helpful from that pers- from just like removing yourself from the usual, like all golf, all the time routine and, and just doing something else for a while? Absolutely. I mean, that on top of it was probably, that was the biggest beneficial thing it did for me because as we all know, golf is such a mental game. And I, I think I caught myself just spinning my wheels for a few, at least a few months, especially the first, just ever since January, I'd say just spinning my wheels and trying really hard. And, you know, every night you go to bed, you just wake up the next day, want to wake up the next day and like, okay, this is what I got to do to figure this out. Really, it just made me take a step back and just lose sight of the game for a couple of weeks. And when I came back, all my thoughts were clear again, and I'm not spinning my wheels. Now I'm able to hit the ground running and really just move with it. And uh, that was the biggest thing. It just taught me a lot of lessons on perspective, taught me uh, how far I've come in the game, that I, I've really put in the hard yards and I've earned myself the right to just believe in myself. And I, I'm not going to get off. I, I can take a few days off. And look, I proved to myself I could take 30 days off come back and almost win a tournament. Like I, I, right. I, I am, I'm not going to lose my field. I'm not going to start getting in bad habits if I just take time off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've paid your dues already. You don't need to keep paying them every day all the time. Exactly. And that's how I pr- operated really in high school and college a ton, because I actually did need to keep those going because I just, my fundamentals weren't as good, but now I realize how good my fundamentals are. And it taught me, Hey, like you can relax a little bit. When you get off the golf course, we're not thinking about golf one bit. Mm-hmm. We're just totally detached and really enjoying my time with my fiance or thinking about my family more or just being away from the game when you're away from the game is so important. And uh, I feel like over the course of the last three tournaments that since I've come back, it's really shown. Yeah, for sure. All right. So it, it wasn't too long after coming back that you entered the, the U.S. Open qualifier. So just quickly tell me about that day and uh, what it was like, you know, qualifying for the tournament. Yeah, it was it was a crazy day. I played the 36-hole qualifier, and uh, I played the first, I'd say, 25 holes really well. Uh, the last 11 holes, I finished very poorly. I finished three over with no birdies in the last 11 holes, and it was a really disappointing finish, and I finished just outside the top eight qualifiers in a tie for ninth. So I was in a five-man playoff just for first alternate, and it ended up going five holes. So I played 41 holes that day. I got to the golf course at 6 a.m. and left the course at 8.45 p.m. <laughs> God. Um, all right. Well, so tell me about the playoff. How did that go? It was wild. Um, all five of us had birdie looks on the first hole. No one made their putt. And then we went on to the next hole. It was a short part four. We all had wedges. I hit the closest wedge to about feet. Everyone else had around 15 feet, and uh, the only person to make their putt was Jim Herman. 
Mm-hmm. So I knew I, I knew I had to make it, but either way, I was going to continue in a playoff for second alternate. So I had to make it in order to get first alternate, made the putt. One of the 12, old, the 12 and 13 are the hardest holes on the course. 12, I made about a five-foot slider to extend. And then on 13, I made a 12-footer that broke about five feet to extend. And Jim made a putt from like five, six feet to extend after my, I made my putt. And then on the 14th hole, it was pitch black, almost pitch black. You can barely see. I knew it was going to be our last hole. And uh, I hit a wedge in there to about eight feet. Jim hit it to about 18 feet. Jim missed it, and I made it, and that, that's what did it. Wow. And, and just to give context for people, Jim Herman is a two-time PGA Tour winner, maybe a three-time PGA Tour winner. Um, not exactly sure off the top of my head, but this guy's a, a player. So it was you versus him for that f- first alternate spot. You, uh, so you were first alternate and, uh, at what point did you know you were in the tournament? Uh, Friday night. So I was like technically the last official man in the field before the official field came out. Uh, so I, I, uh, I think I was second or third overall first, you know, first alternate. So among all the field, all the, uh, qualifying sites, I was, I think second or third, I think Tiger pulled out, Paul Casey pulled out. And then I got a I got a spot because there was a couple different exemption categories for a winner in Canada that didn't win, so that's why I got in Friday night. Gotcha. Um, all right, so you're at the Country Club. First two rounds, you shot sixty nine, sixty eight, which are some incredible U.S. Open rounds. What were you doing well on those days? Yeah, I was uh, really managing my mind and managing my patience and managing all the you know surrounding things around me really well um i was highly focused i drove the ball well the first two rounds and i just uh missed in the right spot and that's that was the key i didn't make a lot of mistakes i think i only made i don't know maybe six birdies but i, I made very few mistakes as well so um it was just a solid couple days um, I was definitely in the harder wave too. So I was pretty proud of the way I played the first two rounds. Mm-hmm. Now, is this your, was this your fourth U S open? Am I right about that? Yeah. Okay. So obviously you have some experience with this tournament. What have you learned from past U S opens that you were applying on those, uh, during those first couple of rounds? Yeah, I, I learned the value of patience, obviously. And, I learned that when you get rhythmic shots, when you get opportunities to get in a rhythm, you take it um, because the U S open is just utter chaos. When you're playing, sometimes it's just, <laughs> you, you're, you, you know, you, it's hard to get, it's hard to hit string three, four, five, six fairways in a row. It's hard to string three, four, five, six greens hit in a row. So what I mean by that is like, if there's times where, you know, you don't want to be over aggressive on the first two rounds, you just want to kind of get the ball in the fairway give yourself some uh, kind of string, some momentum along. So that's, that's kind of what I've learned in the U S opens and how to play and how to go about it. That, that was key. So you were T eight going into the third round. What did it feel like uh, to be in contention at a tournament this big? I mean, y- you've been in some big spots before you've been in some pressure spots, but I think this was sort of new territory for you. Very new territory. I was, you know, in contention of a major on a weekend. I've never done that before, but right. um, I was weirdly relaxed and, and I felt very prepared and I, I, my belief in myself was very high. So 
um, I just felt like I'd manifested this for a long time. And um, I think that's what really helped me. Um, the third round was incredibly difficult because of the conditions and the golf course changed so much that I played Friday morning. Um, it was tough for me to get adjusted to that, but I, I actually played pretty well, all things considering the front nine and, and getting adjusted to that and just the crowd and the whole experience. It was, uh, I was proud of myself for that. I definitely think I came out much more ready to play Sunday because of uh, Saturday's experience. Right. Well, so going back a step for a second, I think that something that people need to recognize about your first two rounds, the 69 and the 68, is that you played late early, right? You were in the afternoon wave on Thursday and the morning wave on Friday, which turned out to be the more difficult draw. I believe it was about a two stroke difference, like it was two strokes harder to play when you played, but you still fired those rounds, which is which is pretty cool. So Saturday, you mentioned the course was different. The conditions were different. Tell me about how much more difficult the course was that day. Yeah, the greens were extremely firm. And that also makes them harder to putt because they get a little glassier. Um, They may get a little less true to putt. And just chipping on the greens is is super tough and predicting how it's going to bounce. That's really just uh, the, the toughest part is the scoring part. So uh, I, you got to go in not really expecting to make many birdies, but like I said earlier, I learned that you got to get some rhythm going in the best you can. Try to string along some shots where you get kind of get in a momentum in a groove, and um, it's really hard to do that, uh, especially Thursday or I'm sorry Saturday's round. It being that windy and uh, especially the wind direction change. That wind direction was probably the hardest direction that that we played. Yeah, it was coming out of the north. It was cold. Um, yeah, it was just it was just a tough day. You ended up shooting seventy three. I believe in that round you had a a triple bogey, and so a, a portion of that seventy three is is certainly due to that just that one hole, I suppose. Yeah, that triple bogey is really unfortunate. I uh, I hit a great shot too, and um, I just hit the back of the green. It bounced over in the fescue grass right against the big rock wall. So I oh, had wow. no shot, um, and I hit it. Was, you know, it was unfortunate because I, I actually hit such a good shot to get there. But my only option was t- taking a playable about fifty yards further back towards the tee box, and um, I hit a very poor recovery four shot that landed short of the green in the rough, and I uh, hit that on and two putted for a triple. So it was really unfortunate because I walked away with the whole feeling like I didn't really hit any poor shots to get there, that triple bogey, but that's what can happen to us open. Um, you get a little off with the club decision. Like I, I missed one club decision and it cost me three shots. Um, so that, that was very unfortunate, but I was really proud of the way I came back after that and buried the next two holes. You did. Yeah. So that was on the 13th hole. Uh, obviously a tough par four that's not played normally by members. You know, you're playing two holes in one there. Um, and a kind of a classic country club punishment there. You miss the green and all of a sudden you're in fescue and rocks. You know, that's, that's sort of what, uh, what that place, uh, delivers. But, um, in any case, uh, going on to Sunday, just take me through the early part of your round. You, you started pretty hot. Yeah. No, I, I started hot with the putter. That was key. I, um, uh, I had two solid shots in the first hole. I def- was definitely feeling the nerves, but, once I, you know, made the, the nice par in the first hole, that settled me down and hit a great shot into two that went over the green, hit a great chip out of the fescue grass next to the bunker. 
was a terrible lie and just did good to get it to about eight, 10 feet. And I made that putt. And then I got a great, another great up and down on the third hole out of the bunker, made another nice little 12, 14 footer for par. And then I uh, hit a nice shot out of the rough into number four and made another about 15 footer for birdie. And then made another 15 footer on five for birdie and then made another 15 footer on number six for par. So I was feeling it with the putter. I did look up at the leaderboard after number five and I was like, wow, two shots back. So um, I knew I kept playing the way I was playing. It could really go my way. I, I don't think I was like, the moment was definitely not too big for me. It's just, and the U.S. Open really will sp- expose any sort of thing in your game that may not be the best. And I, I didn't drive it my best over the weekend. Um, I kind of mishit a tee shot on number eight. And it left me in the first cut in the left side, and I kind of didn't have an angle to go for it. And I wish I was a little more aggressive there. Um, I laid up way too far back, and uh, I could have hit three wood much closer to the green, or even I was considering driver off the deck, but that was a gutsy shot. But you just got to play that hole smart. And I, I didn't hit a good eight iron into that green. I just kind of hit it a little too far right and it came back down the slope. So, and then I hit it over the green and missed about an eight footer from bogey. So it was definitely a tough hole. I'm definitely bummed about the eighth hole. That's where things momentum change. And um, then you got a tough stretch of holes after that nine to 13 are very, very tough holes. So um, yeah, you know, I, the rest of the day, I'm not very pleased with how it turned out. Uh, walked away feeling a little uh, snake bitten about the rest of how it went the rest of the day, but it was super, uh, super good experience for me. So just overall, what do you think you're going to take away from this experience and, and carry into tournaments like, like the travelers this week? Just my focus and the simple to no thought, especially when I'm away from the game, away from the course my focus level and my, how strong my mind is. I'm very proud of the way that I've come back from this injury. Um, and I think I've just shown my capability uh, of playing out against the best players in the world so far. And um, I believe I can win. And I think if I keep putting myself in, a, in chances like that to win on Saturday and Sunday, um, I've walked away from my last three events on Sunday feeling very, I would say slighted, not very happy with the way things finished. So I think, if I keep staying patient, um, I'll walk away from one of these Sundays either with a trophy or just very proud and happy the way I finish. All right, Nick, it's always fun to have you on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Congratulations on, on a great performance this week, and uh, good luck going forward, man. Thank you very much. Thank you. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast is brought to you by Golf Blueprint. So golf season is fully here, and it's a great time to focus on improving your game. There's no better way to do that than concentrated and intentional practice. That's where Golf Blueprint can really help you. Their plans give you focused and structured practice that targets the areas of your game that need the most attention. These plans are based on an algorithm that uses decades of research on learning theory, predictive analytics, and golf data. They tell you what to do, how long to do it, and what to track. Golf Blueprint is the brainchild of two very, very sharp minds, Kevin Moore and Nico Darris. Both Kevin and Nico hold PhDs and are true experts in golf performance. They've worked hard to understand what the average golfer needs to do to improve, and their system allows you to take the guesswork out of your practice and to just show up and execute a real data-supported plan. 
We all have limited time in our lives, but a lot of us would also like to get better at golf and maybe win a few skins off our friends or put in a strong performance at the member guest. If that describes you, check out Golf Blueprint. Go to golfblueprint.com and use the code OG20 for $20 off the first month of a player's membership. That's golfblueprint.com, OG20. All right, on with the episode. Next up is my interview with Paolo Ugetti. Paolo is a staff writer at ESPN.com, and he mainly covers college football. He also used to write about the NBA for The Ringer, but lately he started reporting more and more on golf, and he was on site in Brookline all this week. So let's see what he has to say. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I, I never expected golf to be part of my coverage when I took this job at ESPN, but given that the, go- the college football season is so short and there's a long off season it was kind of like okay what do i do now what do i kind of put in my time just you know to to buy my time for the for the football season and really it just kind of happened out of nowhere where i covered one latin american uh, amateur championship shortly in part in part because i speak spanish so there was like an advantage there to talk to some of the players and suddenly you know i'm being asked if i could go to the women's open and then the men's open and you know so i think it's uh it's happened all really fast, but it's been a lot of fun. I mean, I I recently got into playing like about a year and a half ago, so it's all kind of coalescing into this big like uh golf uh I don't know, golf uh golf interest and and it's been cool to get a chance to, you know, as I'm playing more and and, and finding out more about the game, like being up close to, you know, obviously the best players in the world. For sure. W- when was the Latin American Am that you covered? Was that just like last year? It was this year. It was early this year. I don't remember exactly what month, but um, uh, yeah, it was this year's Latin American Am, which was awesome. I mean, it was it's really cool. Like those events, I feel like are really cool because you get to just get to know a bunch of stories, a bunch of different players who are, you know, coming up and, and from different countries. And so it was a good like initial experience. And then the Women's Open last week was awesome at Pine Needles. That was a great tournament. And also a lot of ton a ton of good stories there. So I think I was slowly making my way uh, to to the men's uh, US Open here, and which which I mean. Quite quite a first uh, men's tournament to, to do, but it's but it was a lot of fun to to get to be up close for that. It was incredible. It, it, it I think it was an all timer. So so you got a, a good one for uh, for your first men's U.S. Open. Um, so let's get into it. You know, if I were to ask you for one big takeaway from this week, like you know, one major thing that you'll you'll remember and keep in your mind for this tournament, what would it be? Um, obviously Fitzpatrick's shot on 18, that, that feels like it's going to be remembered out of the bunker. You know, I, I was right there when he hit it and when it landed, it just was an explosion of cheers. And it was just, just a crazy moment. Like I, as soon as he was in the bunker, I was like, okay, this is going to a playoff. And the fact that he was able to win it all just right there on 18th hole, that was crazy in itself. But I keep coming back to Sal Torres, Will Sal Torres, like for some reason, there was something about him, maybe just the way he talked in press conferences or the way he kind of came off before Sunday's round and then even after Sunday's round. I don't know. There, there. I think I'm, I'm attracted to the mental aspect of the game, I think, a lot. And, and, and he seems to be very much willing to kind of lay it all out there and just say, you know, this is how I'm feeling. And then also, like, you know, he, he literally said, I'm three strokes away from a few strokes away from being a three time major champion. And, and, you know, nobody could argue with that, with him for that. So I think for me, like, I keep coming back to Salatoris because there's a path where he's suddenly the guy that we're talking about instead of somebody like a Scotty Scheffler. And I, I don't know. I find him fascinating and I, and I just wonder where he goes from here. And 
it feels like he's going to win a tournament sooner rather than later. But the fact that he kind of just finds himself in this similar situation, it, it must be tough, you know, for him to, to deal with mentally. Yeah. Well, so he lost in a playoff at the PGA Championship to Justin Thomas, and he comes here. And although there was no playoff, it really did feel like a shootout between Matt Fitzpatrick and Will Zalatoris down the stretch, even though Scotty Scheffler was also getting into the mix during the final holes as well. But it just didn't feel like Scheffler was ever truly kind of part of the main story. The main story was Zalatoris versus Fitzpatrick and Fitzpatrick prevailed. So Zalatoris, did you follow him at all this week? Um, did you uh, talk to him in interviews? What What are just some of your observations about his playing style and his character? And, and was it, you know, something in there that uh, made him appeal to you? I caught him on the last few holes on Saturday when he was coming in at the lowest round. And I, people were amazed at the round he was putting together, really, because of the conditions and the weather. And he was just hitting everything so well. And, and, and I just, the, the putting thing is so fascinating to me because he know, it, it's clear that he knows that there's so much chatter about his putting. And I love that. I love that. I love that he's not like, ignorant to the fact that, you know, people have theories about his putting or, or zap rootering videos about his putting. Like, I love that, you know, and I, I think it's great that he's like kind of lean, almost leaning into it. Like today he called out the Instagram morons. He said, uh, th- th- that we're discussing his putting, uh, wait, or, when did he say Instagram morons? Was this in a post round interview? It was, I, I would have to pull it up, but let me, let me just pull it up really quick because it was honestly. So he was probably talking about people like, you know, sharing videos of his short putts because it's his short putts where the issues crop up or seem to crop up. He makes a lot of them as far as I know, but the stroke is, is hard to watch because there's a hesitation and an adjustment that happens with the putter head on the on the backstroke and and then eventually he's able to bring it through but there's definitely a glitch there a kind of stammer i guess in the in the putting stroke is how i would how i would describe it that's not there on the longer putts in fact his longer his 20 footers this week were dead eye i mean he was making a lot of them and getting close to making a lot more of them but it's his short putts where where the demons seem to sort of pop up a little bit right well i almost think he's 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 strikes me as somebody who's super self-aware of, of, of his game, of just his whole self. And he said that on Saturday after his round, you know, like I'm, le- I'm playing defensively. He said defensively aggressive, basically you have to play on this course. You have to be defensively aggressive. And he said, he's just leaving himself with 25, 20 to 25 put putts so that he knows, you know, he can get him close or he doesn't have to make them. But if, if he gets him close, he'll have very short putts to be able to, you know, just move on to the next hole. And I think for him, it was interesting to to notice that he was, you know, he 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 wasn't very aggressive out there. I mean, he he laid up on, on the short part four or fifth hole every day, which I mean, that hole was. I was right there next to the green today when I was just watching that, and he laid up and and it, it worked out fine. But then Fitzpatrick drove the green. Um, which was insane. Like that was a great was a shot. One of the win. best shots of the day. One of the best shots of the day. So he's, he seems so in control of his game that it's almost like, I wonder if you were letting yourself go a little bit more, maybe those are the chances you need to take, right. To be able to get over the hump. I don't know. Like it's one of those things where you, you, it's hard to tell, right. It's hard to tell what is, what is exactly holding him back. And I don't think there's anything holding him back. And he even said, you know, it's a few inches here and there, a break here and there. And so I, I don't know. I just find him fascinating because I think 
you know, something I wrote on Saturday is, you know, usually we, we think of success for athletes as linear, right? And and even in the NBA or any sport, you, that, that almost, that's almost never the case, right? But what he was saying is almost like the failure has been linear because every time he fails or he comes close and he doesn't win, he learns something else. He picks up something else and feels more confident to where he said, you know, after the PGA cha- championship, he felt okay, I can be one of the best players in the world, which, hmm. you know, he, he kind of showed that today in some ways. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder at what point the learning from failure stops and it just becomes scar tissue. Um, did you get a sense from him after the round this week what he was at least trying to take away from this experience in order to make it positive for the future? Yeah, it was interesting because in some ways the question's directed at him were, you know, how do you pick it back up? You know, how do you, what do you learn from this? And, you know, how do you get over this? And he was pretty honest. I mean, honestly, he was, he said, you know, I haven't had time to process this one. This one will probably sting more than the others because he was so close and, you know, he's going to need time to process it. But he did say, I'm glad that the open is only in a few weeks. That way he can get back out there, get back out there. And so I think he seems like in a pretty good spot. You know, I, I, he was literally, this was like, this is a random observation, but I thought it was pretty interesting. And I'm sure this happens all the time, but he was answering questions while three TVs around him were showing Fitzpatrick raising the trophy. And at one point, they cut the TVs off because they probably realized, like, okay, this is kind of awkward position to be putting Will in. But then they brought him back. And and then suddenly, you know, he's finishing up his interview and Fitzpatrick is coming in and you hear all the cheers. And I don't know, like, I mean, as a human being, you would think that that would get to you in some way. But he seemed pretty composed through it all. Yeah, yeah. Um, did you pull up the Instagram morons quote? I did. I did. Here, let me let me read it. Let me read it to you. Um, so he said, I honestly don't know what to take from this yet. I was pretty pleased just because I'm known for my ball striking. And then, he, you know, he's talking about the putt on 18. I'm sure all the Instagram morons are going to say it has something to do with my left wrist flexion coming down. But I promise you it's got nothing to do with it. I think just keep doing what we're doing. This one stinks for sure. But I know that we're going to get this. So yeah, there you go. That sums yeah. it up pretty well right there. Yeah. I mean, Zalatoris, whenever I see him in interviews, I made this joke on, on Twitter this year about how he, he he's like the golfer that you want to take home to meet your parents because he's so well-spoken. He comes across as friendly, as very intelligent, as self-deprecating, but it also seems to bring with it this, what you referred to earlier as a self-awareness. And, and then that occasionally pops up in his golf game. Uh, I wonder if that's something you, you've thought about, whether that that aspect of his personality, the, the self-deprecation, the he, he's not dull. You know, he's not like really low kind of energy like Scotty Scheffler and Dustin Johnson are, you know, not that those guys aren't intelligent. I think that's a trope that we need to get rid of that. DJ and Scheffler can't be intelligent. They just have a really different and lower energy. And so I wonder if Zalatoris's energy, just being at that kind of higher frequency, if that can be something that will sort of limit him in some of those big moments. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think he he's not low energy, but I wouldn't even say he's high energy either. Like it's so he sort mm-hmm. of just is right there in the middle where he can be, like you said, self-deprecating, but also just kind of explain golf to you in some ways. Like he he's not hesitant to to be like, okay, this was a shot. You know, I was thinking about, you know, and, and and he even talked about Fitzpatrick's shot. Like, he raved about it. You know, he said, you know, I, it's a 1 in 20 shot. It's a shot that will be showing in, 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 in highlights over and over again. And so he 
I mean, honestly, maybe to put it simple, like he just seems like a golf nerd, right? Who mm-hmm. who is able to not just talk about golf in a nerdy way, but also like express it in a way that's very proper and like you know, it, it's very clear. And I, I think that was interesting to me is he 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 wasn't hesitant to to show his what he was feeling. He wasn't hesitant to show. You know, hey, I, I thought about this or did this or like, oh, it, yeah, it sucks that I haven't I've been so close, but I haven't won, you know, and I, I to me personally, that's just like a refreshing perspective. Right. And you mentioned Scheffler and, and Scheffler, you know, he's he tries, you know, he he says things here and there, but he's also like, you know, when I play good golf, it's fun. And, you know, kind right. of it, that's it. Right. It's simple. And, yeah, exactly. And, and honestly, Fitzpatrick similarly had some great quotes, too. He's able to kind of die you know, dissect his game, dissect his round and talk about, you know, what he was thinking on. And obviously, you know, from a media perspective, that just strikes a different chord. Right. And I think I do wonder if like, you know, how how that relates to the game. Right. Whether that changes things at all, because somebody like Scheffler or Dustin Johnson, do they just go out there and play? Right. Um, and these these other guys, like, do they overthink things? Do they, you know, and obviously now we're just kind of projecting that onto them in some way. But it is part of part of, you know, it's such a mental game that you do wonder if, if some of that stuff gets to them a little bit. Yeah. I mean, Fitzpatrick certainly is well known for taking a meticulous scientific approach right. to his game. And uh, that certainly seemed to pay off this week. He has improved substantially over the past few years. The moment that's going to get remembered is that shot from the bunker, the fairway bunker on 18. An incredible shot because when the ball trickled into the bunker off the tee for Fitzpatrick and settled kind of not far from that lip, my first thought was, is he going to be able to get this to the green or is this is he going to have to take a, a lob wedge and kind of pop this out onto the fairway? Now, you said that uh, you're, you were out there. You were you were looking at this shot. So could you set the scene for me? Where where were you and what was going through your mind about what his you know prospects were? So I was right behind the flag, just about behind the flag and, you know, kind of by the TV tower. And of course, everybody's, you know, as soon as they see the ball going in the bunker, it's a huge like, whoa, like, OK, here we go. Like, you know, playoff, thinking about all the different possibilities. Like, OK, it just got real, you know, and, and even Zaltoris referred to it as a match play situation. And it, and it did feel that way, you know. And so, you know, I'm, I'm standing back back there. Everybody's crowding around, you know, anticipation. And, and, and suddenly you see the ball just land so perfectly. And I, I was waiting for it to land in the the front bunker, right? The bunker that's protecting mm-hmm. the 18th green. Because I was thinking about John Rahm the day before and how he landed in the bunker and how, you know, obviously he wasn't able to get out of the bunker the first shot. And the second shot, he just ended up being in, in, in the front bunker. And I, and I, I wonder, you know, it's crazy because you think about what was the thinking between just like just going for it, you know, I, I like Zalatoris called it ballsy, you know, and I think there's probably not a better way to describe it. And so it was this absolute, you know, pandemonium when, when people saw, you know, him land there. And what was, what was even more fun was the fact that when Zalatoris hit it, he hit it just inside Fitzpatrick's ball. So it was just like this, it just felt like this very, you know, almost like a boxing match where like one fighter lands one punch and then the other lands a better punch. And of course, like, you know, Zalatoris had the pressure on him and he had to come back, but, but you could feel the atmosphere of just like, okay, this is, we're, we're witnessing something special, something we rarely get to see. You know, usually you get to see the leader come up, right. And try to finish off 
the round, but the fact that both guys were in the same group and just trying to finish it off and trying to hold on for Fitzpatrick and really trying to come back for Zal Torres. It was, it was a perfect sports moment in that sense because you really had, you know, here's, here's my shot. Here's my shot, you know, and, 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 and that's it. You know, there's no, I mean, Scheffler obviously was in the clubhouse at five under, but at that point it was just about the two of them. Yeah, it really did seem that way. So yeah, Scheffler was at five under, Zalatoris was five under, and Fitzpatrick was standing at, at six under, and uh, which ended up being the winning score. But there were a lot of potential scenarios that could have played out there because if Zalatoris birdied the hole and Fitzpatrick parred it, uh, they the two of them would have gone to a playoff. If Zalatoris birdied the hole and Fitzpatrick bogeyed it, then Zalatoris would have won outright. Um, and there could have been a three-way playoff as well, which was starting to seem like the most likely situation that Zalatoris would par the hole and that Fitzpatrick would bogey it. But that didn't happen because that was such a sensational shot. Now, looking at it from the television viewer's perspective, my thought was that lip of the bunker is a problem. Yeah. That's blocking uh, his route to the pin. And what it looked to me like he did, and I'm not sure if you remember the ball flight, but that he was really he was really specific with the initial start line of the shot. He was discussing that with his caddy. And it looked to me like that start line was well left of the flag. It may have even been left edge of the green. But he was able to cut the shot out of the bunker. He was able to hit a fade. Mm-hmm. And he was able to get it up pretty quickly. I'm not sure if it passed over the lip of the bunker and if maybe he missed his line a little bit to the right. But um, it seemed like the intention, at least, was to kind of start it just outside of that lip of the bunker and let it fall back to the right toward the pin. And just like the ability to do that in that situation from that spot is incredible. I mean, I think Fitzpatrick said he hit a nine hour and, and, and it was funny because he said, you know, I didn't even think about it. Like, it was like, I just, I play fast and, you know, I think it just natural instinct or natural talent took over and I aimed left. I think, I think, uh, my fellow colleague, Kevin Van, Van Valkenburg has a column about, you know, being right there in the, like right behind Fitzpatrick for that shot. And, and I believe he did say, you know, he aimed left, right. To maybe get over the bunker and, and, and have that ball flight in. But yeah, I think it's just 18 was such an interesting hole. I mean, I was also following them during when they were on 15 and it's it's one of those things where you're just like, how does how do things turn out this way? Obviously, the course factors into it, but Sal Torres hit a better tee shot, but he ended up in the rough. And then Fitzpatrick hit a more f- further right, but he, had, he ended up in better lie. And he had a shot that was incredible, too. Like, I think if if he wouldn't have had the shot on 18, we would be remembering the shot on 15 because he just perfectly shaped it into the green. And it was just and Zal Torres could barely get it up there off from the gruff. So it's just, you know, these little breaks, right? These little moments, these little small, you know, different different things could go different ways and, and it would have been a different tournament. But that was, I thought, I, I thought that was another memorable hole because I think that's where things shifted a little bit as well. For sure. All right. Well, Paolo, thank you so much for joining me for this little segment. Appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to seeing more uh, work from you from golf tournaments. Thanks. No, thank you guys for having me. I love the, love the podcast and uh, great to be on. All right. I am here with Ryan Barath, who is now the senior editor of equipment, the senior equipment editor at uh, golf.com. Ryan, you've been on the podcast before. You're back for a quick takeaway segment 
Where are you right now? I am outside of Connecticut for the Travelers Championship. I was at the U.S. Open for a couple of days earlier uh, in the week, went home, back on a plane, and now I'm uh, I'm back on the road covering equipment again. Sweet. All right. So I wanted to have you on to talk specifically about some training and equipment issues with our 2022 U.S. Open champion, Matt Fitzpatrick. A big part of the story this week was Matt Fitzpatrick's distance gains. You'd look at him and you don't think that he's going to hit the ball that far. And indeed, a couple of years ago, he really didn't hit the ball that far. He was kind of in like the Webb Simpson, Zach Johnson area of the distance stats on the PGA Tour. He's added quite a bit of distance since then. A really informative stat I saw earlier today from Joseph LaMagna was that his percentage of drives over 315 yards has risen from around 10% to around like 27%. So he's, you know, he's hitting a lot of drives way out there. He kind of has that bomb ball in him now. And in terms of driving average, he's now he's now around kind of tour average. So he has added a significant amount of distance. It was a big talking point on the telecast this week. And you have some information about how he went about that. So could you just give me a sense for what the basics of that story are? How did Matt Fitzpatrick add that amount of distance? So there's a couple factors here. One is his equipment. He is extremely optimized. One of the interesting things about a lot of players on the PJ Tour is they they are not completely optimized for distance. They're optimized for maybe a little bit more accuracy because they have you know power in the tank, mm-hmm. as you would say. But for Matt... All of his equipment is designed to, especially with his driver, I mean, is is designed for optimization of launch and spin. And what that comes down to, which is a relationship to clubhead speed, is ball speed. Ball speed is one of the most important factors when it comes to looking at distance potential that you're able to create. And the more ball speed you can create, the more distance you're going to create. You can see players with extremely high clubhead speeds that might not necessarily be extremely efficient. Well, Matt has put himself in a category where he is extremely efficient when it comes to his equipment just for optimization and we saw that I mean there was a number of times where people pointed out that he drove it further than Dustin Johnson and you know you know five to ten years ago someone would go out and see Dustin Johnson and he's probably one of the longest players on tour and to think that somewhat unassuming British man would uh put it by by him a number of times at the U.S. Open this week uh was something to watch and I think as you said a lot of people took notice very quickly so the equipment is optimized there's been some training that has gone into this as well, right? And you you have quite a bit of information about a specific method that he's been using. I believe he's been working on some technique stuff, as anybody would, if they're uh, trying to uh, gain some distance. Um, and so he's he's kind of shut down some of those distance leaks that he had before. Your colleague at Golf.com, Luke Cardenine. But tell me a little about the stack system. Yeah, so the stack system is uh, essentially an overload underload program that was developed by Sasha McKenzie and Marty Jertson. Sasha is a Canadian biomechanist, and a lot of people are familiar with Marty Jertson. He's a VP of performance and fitting at Ping Golf. And one of the things that I know he's talked about in the past, and I had the chance to interview him before, was you know Marty's a very accomplished player, and I believe he was playing in a PGA Championship or a U.S. Open. And he saw that he needed distance. Like he realized that, you know what, if I need to play at the big boy level, I need to be able to get it out there where, with a lot of these players. And, you know, they, they worked to develop this overload underload. And a lot of people are familiar with it, with um, 
baseball. I would say close to 10 years ago, this started becoming something where players would throw something heavy and then throw something light and throw something heavy and throw something light. And it basically trains your body to actually move faster. And the stack system is that for golf. And it works with a, with a basically a single stick that allows you to adjust the weights on it. Extremely heavy, extremely light. It can somewhat, it can basically replicate the overall uh, weight and feel of your driver, although it is, I believe, 42 inches long, so a lot shorter than your driver. And you can, you go through this program and the program, thanks to, to Sasho and Marty, again, very, very smart people, creates an individual program based on your driver swing, based on where you are losing potential because it goes through a baseline uh, setting program that is basically like close to, it's what takes about 25 to 30 minutes to go through. It's a lot of swings. And one of the reasons I'm familiar with it is because I'm a user. Uh, I was, I would say that I was a relatively early adopter to this, much like Matt. I was someone who was not overly long. I mean, Matt was much longer than me anyways, but you know, to, to see what is potential, like potentially available through also not only like creating and, and reducing those speed leaks, as you say, in your swing, but also finding a program that's going to work. And for Matt, I mean, I was at the range of the Canadian Open a couple weeks ago now, and he was out there using this thing over and over again. And it's it has warm-up programs. It has programs that are can you can use like in more in off-season, so they're like really more heavy training programs, maintenance programs. It's a really cool system. And again, you know, I don't – I'm just an, uh, an advocate for it because I, I, I didn't think that I would have the potential to gain the speed that I did when I started using it about a year ago. And uh, it's impressive. And for Matt, I mean, you know, for someone who averaged, say – under 170 to, to hit ball speeds into the low and mid 180s at the US Open this week. That is a big, big jump because ball speed is king when it comes to creating distance. And he's obviously done that. And, you know, the, the stack system, again, is something that has, as baseball pitchers have used it to gain speed, it trains your body to move faster. You don't have to bulk up like Bryson. You can get stronger, but you don't need to bulk up like a, you see a lot of these players try to do. You got to protect your body in certain ways when you are moving faster. But it comes to down to training your body to actually make that speed and control it. And obviously, he he did a very good job of that. And it also helped him, you know, hit it straighter too, which is very important. Right. Now, okay, so this is not an ad for the stack system. You are not uh, endorsing the stack system. You're somebody who has used it. We're talking about this because it's a pretty common thing that tour players are doing now. They're using these speed training programs. There are ones other than the stack system out there. What's, gonna, what's the yeah. one that's like really well, the, the one that kind of is maybe the best known? What's it called? It has it's like the different sticks. Yeah, it was um, like speed sticks. Um, so they, they have, so the difference, again, very similar programming. Um, stack uses it like an app. They have other programs that are within the, um, this, well, I think I want to say it's speed six. I, I don't know. I'm, I feel like I'm yeah, so, something. I, like I feel that. it's simplified. You, like you that, can but. find different examples uh, of this out there and players use these things, you know, and, and essentially it's like, it's like weight training kind of, but it's, it's the golf swing. Exactly. And, uh, you've seen, uh, like Phil has used them in the past. I know, you know, everyone talked about Phil, like keeping his distance into his fifties, which is a very impressive feat overall. And you can see him out on the range. So he'll use these things, these weights. Doing and the really fast swings, right? Yeah. It became kind of like a minor meme for a bit when he first started doing it because it looked so ridiculous. But what he was doing was he was like training himself how to swing super fast. And it might sound kind of stupid, but it seems like one of the big things that you need to do if you're trying to gain distance is just swinging faster. You just have to get used to whipping the club through faster. And that's what these guys are doing now. 
And one of the fascinating things, and I've, I've worked with people and like about this, and I'm not, I'm no expert in the field. I'm just a user and have absorbed a lot of information around people and, and gone through this process is the fact that you can only swing as fast as you can stop it. You know, you can only put like an, F, an F1 car can only go as fast as it's able to stop or else it, it doesn't work. Right. And so part of this is your body being able to control that speed and know where it's going. These are players at the highest level. So again, we've got the stack. There's the, the super, super speed. That's it. So it's super speed program. Super, yeah. That's the, yeah. Yeah. And then the, there's an, another one called the, the slingshot, which is a, a relatively new product. And they all offer different kind of ways of doing this using uh, either timing devices or interchangeable weights. Slingshot is one that has a number of interchangeable weights. The speed sticks has um, a number of different sticks, so they're non-interchangeable. You'll see other versions of these as well, but it's it's essentially an overload, underload program. And for Matt, this is one of those things, when you work in club fitting and club building and, and you see all the time, how do I gain distance? How do I gain distance? How do I gain distance? You can optimize as much as you want, but you know, everyone says, oh, the shaft is the engine of the club or the club head is the engine of the club. The bo- Your human body is the engine of the golf club. You cannot make a golf club go faster unless you're able to swing it faster. You can do little things to tweak it, maybe make it a little lighter, a little longer, but the potential comes from you as the human being. And Matt's the perfect example of someone who, you know, really doesn't mess with his equipment. He's got some fairly old gear in his bag, newer driver, relatively newer fairywood, newer, I mean, we're talking clubs in the last five years and his driver is a new uh, current model, but he's realized that, you know, I'm going to change my body. If I'm going to do something really important, it's going to be training my body. And you know, Bryson got, gets a lot of the attention for what he created and the drive Bay Hill and all these different things. But over the last two years, it's progress, progress, progress. And obviously it, it worked out for him taking it home Brookline. Yeah. It seems like a pretty durable model for Matt Fitzpatrick. He's not going anywhere. Would expect him to win on the PGA tour a bit more, but he's starting to seem like one of those major specialists, one of those guys who just shows up when the course is good and hard and when the pretenders are going to fall away, you know, that's, that's when Matt Fitzpatrick is, is going to thrive. And and part of it is due to this uh, really smart work that he's done on his game. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Ryan. Appreciate it. Have fun in Connecticut this week. That's a fun tournament. That's cool that you get to go to that one. I'm um, looking forward to seeing your work out of there and, and we'll chat again soon. Thanks for having me. All right. I am on the line with Bradley Klein, who is a golf architecture historian. He was also on site this week to write some articles for Morning Read, which is now a Sports Illustrated company. So you can see his work there. Brad, you were at the country club this week. When exactly? Uh, This week I was, well, I was at media day three weeks ago and played the course. Uh, Not from those tees. I played them from (laughs) more forward these like 60, 100 yards. Uh, and then I was out there all day, Wednesday, all day long, and then uh, walked with a couple of players inside the ropes and then did the same thing on Friday. Okay. So uh, just talking about the course itself, the architecture that you saw out there, the setup that you saw out there, what is your number one big takeaway from the week? I thought the course was absolutely brilliant. It held up. It presented an amazing challenge. Uh, in some ways, it was a, a little bit more of a typical or classical throwback U.S. Open setup. Didn't have the wide fairways of Aaron Hills. 
Uh, it didn't have the contrivances of crazy fast greens with, with the surrounds that rolled out forever like Shinnecock Hills in 04 and in 2018. It was a wonderful combination of fairly small greens. You notice there was no short, there's no, there no short grass rollouts around there. You rolled into sand or graduated rough and they're very precise cuts. Uh, the course is not long. It was like 72, 64. I think overall probably played a little shorter each day, but it, because you had wind, uh, and the course was firming up each three days uh, until the rains came Saturday night. But, you know, you saw the the scores were rising when the wind and the dry uh, weather came up. And then all of a sudden this morning, because of the uh, three-tenths of an inch, course was a little more receptive shot. Average score went down. But it was a stunning, perfect test for modern tour players. It was not bomb and gouge. You had to be precise. Uh, a lot of inconsistency in the lies and bunkers uh, around the, the bunkers and in the rough. Uh, the other thing you saw, which was interesting, is because you had so many layered cuts, you know, you had fairways cut, then you had five-foot-wide intermediate at an inch and a quarter, then you had an eight-foot-wide path that was two-and-a-half to three inches, then you had more intense rough at four inches. So a lot of times the ball rolling out would come up right against the edge, and you couldn't tell, if you know, your hosel could catch in the heavier grass, and you're lie was in the slightly shorter grass. So you had a lot of difficult, complex uh, lies and uh, shots to have to deal with. And I just thought it was a fantastic open. Nobody lost it. Uh, Fitzpatrick played brilliantly. Um, Just fabulous. Absolutely fabulous open. Yeah. Um, So, you know, you were there on Wednesday and Friday. The word was that on Wednesday, the course was pretty fiery. And then on Friday, they slowed it down just a bit with some water. Did you see a a difference in how the course was playing during that last practice round on Wednesday versus how it played on Friday? Well, there was a lot less wind and the wind, um, it was the same wind as on Thursday. In other words, uh, it was a reverse wind coming out of the east on Wednesday, as I recall. And then it came out of the northwest for the, the last few days. So uh, what I did see was that the, the wind pretty much laid down and it was warmer also. And then the temperature dropped over the weekend. So the ball doesn't go quite as far. But they didn't tinker with that golf course very much. Uh, they might have put a little water in because it was supposed to rain on Friday and it never did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a little bit of control, but not much. And I didn't see any, I didn't see mowers in the rough. Um, <laughs> so they they just let it go. And you know, what's very impressive is uh, the strength. Uh, now, I was there in 88, so uh, th- that's a day, th- those are the days of, uh, you know, the old wound golf ball and Curtis Strange, you know, hitting it 255 off the tee. Uh, the athletes now, they weren't athletes then, are so much stronger and they can attack the ball with so much force on a vertical plane that allows them to, to flush through the rough and so uh, because it's not quite Bermuda, the ball doesn't go to the bottom of the get completely covered for the most part so that they, they can muscle their way out. And, you know, they're hitting seven irons, 190. But that's the modern athletic golf swing. And I, what's interesting is it's um, everybody is learning it. There was much attention paid to um, Fitzpatrick having increased his swing speed from 112 to 119 miles per hour over the last two years and what that allowed him to do. And he's not a very big guy. You know, you look at the two guys, uh, Zalatoris and Fitzpatrick are fairly slight looking, but boy, do they 
get a lot of velocity out of the swing. So I think the graduated rough here actually worked really well. The one regret I always have with these setups is because of the spectator trampling at the far edges, if you miss the fairway by 50, by 10 yards, you have a very difficult lie to deal with. If you miss it by 40 yards, you're in trampled down ground. I, I don't think there's any way to deal with it other than keeping spectators off. But um, Which you, know. you don't want to do. But but it is sort of yeah. graduating it in the opposite direction from uh from what the what the intention is. Um so you you referred to the nineteen eighty eight US Open at the country club, which you attended. You know, the course then was prepared by Reese Jones. That was uh that was the Reese Jones restoration, you know, the kind of uh the you know, we discussed this in the podcast that we uh, just released about the open doctor. That was kind of a, a, a really important moment in popularizing the notion of restoration. You know, I'm not sure how vividly you remember the details of the course from 1988, but if you were to compare the course now to that course then at the 88 U.S. Open, what are some of the main differences that jump out to you? Well, there are half as many trees. And there's twice as much or three times as much fescue tall knee high grasses. And, um, you know, when I look back now and I think about what was that restoration talk all about? Because the fairways were fairly narrow. Uh, you couldn't get the, the, the ball to roll quite as firmly because of all sorts of technology. I, I do think there was some greens expansion back then. They lengthened the golf course. I, you know, I, I, what, I, what I would say is that the country club, even then, presented a very different image than uh, many of the old uh, golf courses that were on the tour or for that matter on the on the US uh, US Open Rota. If you think back to what Congressional or Olympic Club uh, or, or certainly Oakland Hills which was just tight ribbon fairway lateral bunkers left and right you did have more offset bunkering uh, at the country club back then and that was accentuated they were expanded a little bit so you did have that sort of, I, I would say, the, particularly the offset bunkering. I remember that very distinctly. And dealing with those craggy mounds like on third hole or the, the, the long four-part tenth hole. So what was achieved this time around through Gill Hands and through Superintendent Dave Johnson and the, the USGA prep with uh, Darren Bavard as a championship agronomist uh, was a real masterwork of fast down the middle and very demanding on the edges. And uh, it just worked out. You know, if you notice, because all the talk all week was about the live Saudi tour and Greg Norman and all that other stuff, people forgot the golf course. And it was not a single, the biggest issue on the whole golf course all week was, was whether Justin Thomas should have gotten a, a, a drop from the fairway at the drain uh, on Saturday. <laughs> that was it. There, nobody had a single complaint. Well, which seems to be kind of the goal right now, right? For the USGA setup team, that the course is not really the story, or at least that's that's what it strikes me that they've been trying to do. You know, they want the course to be maybe the story in the early week in the sense that we go to a different course every year. But if the course is a story later in the week, then to the USGA right now, that will usually mean that it's not good, that people are talking about the setup in a, neg in a negative way. But this week... That wasn't really the, the point of discussion. The golf course can, should be the story on Tuesday and Wednesday, and Thursday it should be about the competition. Now, part of the difference, I want to be careful how I say this, is that Mike Wan is not an aspiring architect. He's a businessman. <laughs> right, which my, my, Mike Davis was, uh, has since actually gone into 
architecture. And, and that's not meant as an insult to him. But to be fair, Mike Davis did bring a lot of innovation to the golf course setup that was evident today. You had a brilliant short four par, the fifth hole that they could go for, which, by the way, played a level par today. Didn't even play under par. What, what Mike Davis did introduce was the graduated rough and the importance of shifting the kind of categories of holes. So you had short fours and long fours. And you had, uh, you know, like you had this time around, very demanding long four pars like that 10th hole uh, that played way over par. You know, the one with the second shot way up the hill. So I give him credit for that. And he, he certainly made the USJ take more of an investment in the course setup in a more varied way than just the punitive single file, you know, down the middle with 22 uh, yard wide fairways. So sure. a lot more variety out there. You know, some of these fairways were 40 yards in the, in the landing area and then it narrowed down to 12 in the chicane like you had on the third holes or the 10th hole. So uh, I just thought the variety was brilliant. And you had, because you've taken out all these trees, you have a lot more wind across the golf course. So people don't appreciate the, the impact of wind as something that sort of pops up once you've taken trees down. That's still a tree golf course, but it was a lot more openness to it as well. Right. And inconsistent trees. And so the winds become sort of unpredictable because there are places presumably on the course where the winds are kind of, you know, it, it feels a little more still, but then there are more open places where the wind plays a big role. And so the player always has to be thinking about it. It's not a constant thing. It's a variable thing. Well, the perfect example is that little drop shot par three, eleventh hole, which I believe played to par today, or maybe a little bit over because of the front hole location and the fact that when you put the ball up in the air, it's only a gap wedge or a or a lob wedge. Uh, all sorts of things can happen to it. So it's a combination. And Gil Hans and his team did a very good job of expanding the greens and then push the edges rolled out. You saw that all the time, particularly in the par threes. Where uh, you and, and we saw this repeatedly during the week, where you had to judge, you had, you had to sort of weigh the approach shot. So you landed just on the green and let it roll out. And if you if you landed the ball too far into the green, it would roll through into the heavy rough, and then you'd have a very awkward downhill shot from an uncertain line. So that's where you know a lot of shots were, were lost just on those pitches where you trying to control it, but you're also guessing at the line. So. Right. Uh, all that stuff to me was just brilliant to observe. So I'm on the record as being a little bit nostalgic for the fiasco U.S. Open. You know, the U.S. Open that just kind of spins out of control. Uh, there are various examples of this. The ones where the players get really angry at the course setup when maybe the USGA loses the greens a bit at some point during the week. Yeah. Those are just really entertaining. They're distinctive kind of in the world of golf. There wasn't really any other tournament that could go wrong like a U.S. Open could go wrong. And I understand why they've moved in this more professional direction now. They, they really have control of the courses now. And Six Under has won the past three years. And so it's clear that they're shooting for a number somewhere in those kind of mid-single digits under par as opposed to over par or around even par, which I believe was more the goal back in the day, maybe during the Mike Davis era and certainly before that. And so I, I wonder if, if you, you know, given that you love the setup this week, so did I, I thought it was brilliant, but it's also representative of a, of a kind of new phase of USGA setup. Do you share that, that uh, sort of longing occasionally for a US open that, that goes really crazy? Or, or is that something that you don't look back on as fondly? No, I hate it because it, all it does is 
make for easy, cheap kind of press that is uninformed about what usually goes wrong. I'll give you an example of how they manage it, though. Here's a great example. The fourth hole, they've been driving over a blind to a flat fairway and then the green. All four days, the pin was in the middle left. They, that green slopes hard right to left. They could, if they had put the pin on top right, we'd still be playing that round because the ball would never come to a stop. So they were, they're smart enough now. Now, and they also have moisture meters. They have, uh, they know exactly what the wind is going to be. They know, they know exactly the condition of the turf, uh, in ways that they're much smarter about. So, I mean, I, to me, these sort of setups play to my strengths, which is I have, and I spend a lot of time with these guys. I, I, I feel for the superintendents. I've known Dave Johnson, the superintendent, I've known him for 17 years now and worked with him on a couple of courses, including back when he was a nine hall guy at Whitenessville. So I find it more satisfying to see their skills come through. So, um, but that's just cause I'm a snob, I guess, or something, or, you know, I, no, I, I think, it, I think it means it's more empathetic, I guess. <laughs> yeah. The car wrecks are kind of weird to watch, but I'm not, it's not a great way to finish. I was at, I was at Shinnecock in 2000, uh, 2004 and so what happens um and i the other thing is i hate it when pros complain i'd rather give them a playing surface that they have to show their skills and uh you saw that this week some of these guys knew that they could do it and you know it didn't reward bryson dechambeau style of golf you had to control the ball so i thought it was pretty well done in that sense yeah, well, I, I mean, I got to say it. Even even though I do have a kind of affection for some of those fiasco U.S. Opens, just from you know the car wreck watching point of view, because I'm not as good of a person as you are, Brad. That's that's basically what it comes down to. You have to say that the finish today, the final round, the shootout between Zalatoris and Fitzpatrick, with Scheffler kind of uh, poking his head in there at the end as well completely justified this new approach that the USGA is taking where they're a bit more conservative. They're a bit more, you know, early in the week, they kind of keep the governor on a bit. That approach has been justified by, by the competition. It was really fantastic. All right. Well, I've I've kept you long enough here, Brad. Uh, Thank you so much for stopping by and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. You know, they gave the, uh, the green section award to Dave Johnson. If the superintendent next year at LA North doesn't get it, we'll know he screwed up. (laughs) thank you to nick hardy paolo ugetti ryan baraf and bradley klein for those interviews what a great week at the country club just one of the best majors in recent memory and i cannot wait for the open championship at st andrews If you've been enjoying the Fried Egg Podcast, please do us a favor and leave a rating and review in iTunes. That's maybe the easiest way to support what we do, and it really helps us reach new listeners. That's it. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon. 